right in. I am Muhammad Bahari and I'm a part of Financial Literacy for Youth Malaysia, which is an NGO started by two students from LST all the way back in 2016. And uh, we are now seven years strong and we do two main things. The first is host events and the second is create content like this podcast with the singular goal of empowering youths with financial literacy through the education of finance, economics, and investment. So financial literacy, from what I understand, is an issue that is quite close to you. In 2019, you officiated the launch of Malaysia's The National Strategy for Financial Education, 2019 to 2023. And a lot of people welcome this because it answered the question, you know, a lot of people always say, why isn't the government doing more to promote financial education among Malaysians? And the setting up of the FAN network was a welcome uh, thing to everyone. So the first question I have for you is, do you remember how this strategy came about? Well, money plays a big role in the life of any person or any society. So you need to understand what is the role of money? It's not just for exchanging money for goods or services. Money also becomes a, a capital for investment. And that is very important. If you don't understand how to invest money, you will never earn in money for yourself. So everybody should know how money functions. And most people, in fact, do not know. They only use money to exchange for goods or services. That is why education in finance becomes extremely important. So going off on that, what is the best financial advice that you would share to our audience who mostly make up of youths? Yes, money, as I explained, is not just for exchanging for things. It is also for making more money for yourself. If you know how to use money as capital, then you can earn money from money. Uh, the way you place money, the way you invest money, you may buy shares, you may buy goods, uh, which appreciate in value, you may save. There are lots of things that you can do with money, which will be beneficial to you. So, that is uh, why uh, understanding finance becomes important to every individual and every community. Uh, but let's say to the ordinary Malaysians, would you tell them maybe to invest in ASNB or something like that? Is that something you feel strongly about? Well, we created funds uh, to enable people who do not understand the uh, the... Uh, stock exchange, for example, what do you do with the stock exchange? You want to put money in, you don't know which, uh, which uh, business you should put your money in. But you have a fund that almost guarantees that you have a return. The fund will do the investment. So what you do is you put your money in the fund, like PNB, for example, then PNB will invest the money earn a, an income, and that income is given to you uh, based on how much money you have invested. So money 
by itself uh, depreciates in value over time. So if you save money and not invest it, you are going to lose the value. So don't save money just as money, but money that is saved must be invested or at least it must be used to buy something that will appreciate in value over time. For example, gold. Okay, so I never thought I would get financial advice from Tun Mahadeh, but Tun Mahadeh is bullish on gold and PNB. So now that we've covered financial literacy, I want to focus on the youth, right? And people may not know this, but you are young ones. And not only were you young, but you were a youth activist. You made posters back in your student days. You engaged with youth groups across Malaysia. And you also wrote newspaper columns in the New Straits Times during your student days. So it's been a while since the 1940s. Many Malaysians maybe don't know their history well. So can you paint a picture for those who don't know? What motivated you to engage with politics as a youth? What was it about the independence movement that awakened something within you? Well, I lived during the period when Malaysia was under foreign rule. Basically, uh, the British uh, ruled Malaysia. And then, of course, the British lost the Japanese. And subsequently, the Japanese transferred the state of Canada to Thailand, and then the British came back. So we welcomed the return of the, the British, thinking that they will continue with their agreement with the Malay state. That is the agreement to advise the state on the administration of the state. But instead of that, the British decided to, to take over the whole country literally to conquer a country and make it into a single unit, uh, dismiss all the rulers and uh, rule it as a British colony. Of course, uh, we resented that because Malaya was our country and we feel that the British were trying to uh, just uh, uh, take, take over our country. So I became interested in uh, defending Malaysia. I thought that it is wrong for the British to colonize Malaysia. And that's how my involvement in politics began. Is that why you like Star Wars? Because you know it's about the empire, the rebels working against the empire. Okay, I think I've gained some insights into Tun Mahadev. The next thing I want to ask you is your perspective on failure. This is something everyone faces in their daily life, but I think as a society, we sort of celebrate successes, but don't really talk about the challenges and hardships, right? So when we talk about youths, perhaps they didn't get the job they wanted or an exam didn't go so well. And you've had your fair share of setbacks that people might not know of. So the first thing is you wanted to study law, but instead were uh, given the scholarship to study medicine. You have lost uh, party elections in 1970 and general elections in 1969. And your political career had a huge setback in 1969, I think, when you were expelled from UMNO. So can you share how did you personally deal with failure? But more importantly, how do you come back from that? Well, I feel that uh, in the course of your, uh, well, activity. There are times where you fail, there are times where you recover. So when you fail, you should try uh, to recover. 
as quickly as possible to do what you intend to do. So when I fit, I in in school, I never fail any exam. But uh, in the medical college, my final year, I I fail in obstetrics and gynecology. So I had to stay back for six months. Well, for that six months, I studied art to make sure that I would get through uh, obstetrics and gynecology and qualify as a doctor. So when you fall, get up and fight the same, the same fight to achieve what you set out to achieve. So that is a very important thing. There are some people when they fail, uh, they give up. They feel that, well, uh, it's not worthwhile uh, striving anymore. It's not worthwhile trying to uh, get what you intended to do. But uh, for me, I accept that in life, there will be times when you fail and times when you succeed. And when you fail, you have to get up and fight harder in order to succeed. Is there one failure that you have experienced that was the hardest to come back from, you feel? One that you were like, oh, this really hurts. You know, it's hard to even wake up in the morning, that sort of thing. Well, uh, I was expelled from the party by, by the Tunku uh, because I criticized him. Uh, but I was hopeful that uh, one day I would come back. And indeed, uh, the Tunku resigned and Turaza took over. Uh, I was quite uh, friendly with Turaza and he allowed me to return. Uh, that is unusual because when Aziz is up, a minister in Tunku's government, uh, he was sacked from the party and, sacked, and uh, he, he never made a comeback. He tried, he tried to uh, contest again, but he failed. So moving on from that, let's talk about your comeback. You know, you mentioned to Razak, you had this exponential climb up the political ladder, so to speak, all the way to the highest office. And you also mentioned the support from your grassroots, right? You had, especially after you had written your book, The Malay Dilemma, you also won the most votes in a Supreme Council election. So why do you think they like you, you know, why did you have such strong grassroots support, especially from a non-royal? Also, you you know, you had bottom-up support, but you also had support from the top. And you mentioned that Itun Raza, your words was that he was your political salvation. And a lot of people saw you as his blue-eyed boy, and he had a tendency to favor you. So I am curious, why do you think he took such a liking to you? That's the first one. And are there any lessons? that you think our audiences would find useful when wanting to stand out to their superiors? Yeah, well, when I was a member of parliament between 64 and 69, uh, I made speeches, of course, in parliament. I made speeches outside parliament. And this uh, uh, helped people to notice what I, st I stood for. So Razak realized that uh, what I said was in keeping with what he thinks. Uh, and I think he felt that I would carry forward his, uh, his ideas. So uh, Razak, of course, had a lot of uh, young people uh, quite friendly to him. Dola Aman, Dola Wahab and all that. So these four, 
few people were close to him because he has a tendency to move with the young people at that time. And I was in that young people's group and we got to know him very well. And uh, he, I, I suppose uh, he agreed with what I said and what I intend to do, intended to do. Do you think you worked harder than everyone else in cabinet? Or I was not a member of cabinet at oh, that right. time, mm -hmm. but later on I was a member of cabinet and I took interest. You know, in cabinet, we have different portfolios. Uh, most people only look at their own portfolio, not uh, other, other subjects. But I like to read everything, uh, other people's uh, ministries and what they are doing. And during cabinet meeting, I pass comments. And uh, I, well, I suppose the comments were relevant to the subject. And uh, I think uh, uh, people realize that I read all the all the cabinet papers and I have some ideas uh, on them which I voice during cabinet meetings. Okay, so the advice is if you, if you want to impress your boss, just go the extra mile, I think. <laughs> Be hard and work a lot. And the next thing is, you know, when we talk about politics, you are what's been characterized as a political survivor. I'm thinking about how during your 22 years, uh, during your first premiership, you were able to survive many challenges. And, you know, not everyone is going to have to go through uh, huge party elections as you've had, but we are going to go into the workplace. And in the workplace, there will be office politics, right? There are ladders to climb and structures to navigate. So is there something you find very important to coming out on top? Well, yes, I think uh, when you are working, you have uh, subordinates, uh, people working for you. And it is good for you to be able to get along with your staff. Uh, so I, I do not sack people or do something like that. In fact, most of my staff stayed with me for years and years. I still have some of the staff who worked with me when I was prime minister. Until now, they are still with me. I get along with them and they deliver because I, I have faith in them. And if they go wrong, I explain to them where they go wrong. So. I always believe that um, uh, you should not very quickly get rid of your staff simply because they did something that is uh, not to your liking. Uh, you have to correct them and you have to be sensitive to their, their feelings as well. So I, when I was uh, as a member of parliament, as well as a minister, and then Prime Minister, I get along well with my staff and they deliver. Um, but also, you know, when we talk a lot about politics, there's the policy aspect. You know, when you're in government, you're actually putting forth things to make Malaysia better. But there's also that other side of party politics, right, where you have to sort of play the game. And, you know, in engaging in party politics, you sort of lose allies, people that you thought were your friends now became your enemies. And one thing that was striking in your book is you mentioned how I think he was the MB of Selangor, Harun Idris. 
he brought you into UMNO, as you say, but then later he turned against you. And then even in 2020, your party sort of, also not to say backstab, okay, let's use the word, maybe backstab, rejected, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I get a bit of sadness from you from reading, especially the last chapter of Capturing Hope. So do you ever feel, or do you ever reflect on the friends that you've lost as a result of participating in politics or is it never personal and just business? Yeah. <clears throat> no one person can be liked by everybody. You always have some people who do not like you. In fact, when I was, uh, I was chosen as a deputy prime minister, uh, there were a lot of people who wanted to be the deputy prime minister who did not get it. And they felt that I was the wrong choice. So uh, there, there is that kind of antagonism towards me. I have to deal with them. I have to work with them. I don't want to uh, find them spending their time attacking me, but I have to find a modus operandi with them. Uh, can they be uh, more supportive than uh, at that time? And I find that uh, uh, when you make people your enemy, then they you become their enemy. You see, so it's better not to make people your enemy, but to get along. That is why, for example, when Musa and Razali, Tuku Razali, contested for the, 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 the deputy post, I did not support either Musa or Tuku Razali because I couldn't know who is going to win. If I support Musa and Ghazali win, I will have a bad time with Ghazali. So the best thing is to stay away and let them fight. Whoever wins, I can get along with them. I think that's something quite extraordinary. A lot of people talk about Pakatan Harapan, but the, the thing to me that was inspiring is sort of being able to cross the aisle again and work with people that were once people that you sort of vilified or fought against but everyone at the end of the day was, you know, holding hands and sort of trying to make Malaysia better. Okay, and the next thing I want to touch on is I call this soalan merepek a bit, like a bit more fun questions, a bit just things maybe some people have wondered. So I'm not going to use the word mega project because apparently you don't like that word. So I will say landmark instead. Is there a landmark during your time as Prime Minister that you are most proud of? Uh, is it KLCC, Putrajaya or the North-South Expressway? Well, uh, I would say that Putrajaya is uh, something that uh, the country benefits even now. Uh, at the time when we decided to move all government offices to one place, at that time already Kuala Lumpur was overcrowded traffic jams, and in those days, you can't ring each other the way you ring, we have Zoom and all that. In those days, no. You have to travel from one office to another to meet your counterpart. So because of the traffic jam, uh, movement and contacts became very difficult. But if you place all the ministry in one place, then they can walk across to the other ministries. Uh, so we decided that we should have not a change of capital, but a change of administrative capital. 
So Putrajaya is only an administrative capital. And uh, since it's uh, setting up, uh, I mean, contact between ministries have become much easier and it's easy to call for a meeting. For example, you don't have to cross the whole city to, to go to your meeting place. And there are many other convenient things. But I would say KLCC has kinokunya. <laughs> so that makes it slightly better. But also, is your favorite food tempura? Because when I was reading your book, there are like two pages about uh, your appreciation for how the Japanese chef cooks the tempura. Is that your favorite food? Yes, yes. It's one of the food that I like best. Of course, there are other food which, uh, which uh, also I, I, I also like. <clears throat> but tempura is a special dish with the Japanese and it is cooked in a special way that shows the attention paid to presentation of the food. <clears throat> I mean, tula is like something as simple as frying something, right? But the meticulousness of how they do it is very impressive. So I think I'm very conscious of timing because you're always on time and want to finish on time. So I have one last question for you. So my observation on your most admirable trait is your conviction, right? So in many ways, this was sort of the drive needed to industrialize rapidly for Malaysia and the reason for many successes like the dawn rate and the capital controls during the financial crisis. So there are some things that also have gone wrong or policies that may not have worked out so well, right? Uh, like a big effect of centralization is that a lot of states are left behind and part of low wages can be attributed maybe to the strength of big business, right? But you have no regrets and your admirers and your critics would agree on one thing is that you acted in the belief that you did the right thing. So where do you think your confidence and conviction comes from? Well, I read a lot not only books, of course, the news coverage of other countries, problems of other countries. I also visited many countries. I observed what they're doing, which is right, what they're doing, which is wrong. So I learned a lot from my reading, from my travels, etc. And I used that uh, knowledge to design the policy for the country. And uh, I find that, uh, any anything that you propose, you will have people who are for it and people who are against it. And the arguments will, if you go by the arguments they put, you will not do anything. But you have to make a decision. As a leader, you have to make a decision. For example, when we decided to build uh, Putrajaya, uh, of course, lots of people say it's a waste of money, it's a waste of time, that's not necessary and all that. And there are some say, oh, we must do this, we must, this is absolutely necessary. So as a leader, you have to make a choice. And I made the choice to have Putrajaya. So, but, so just make the decisions and do you usually work on it after it happens? So it's better to make a decision rather than think about it for too long. Would you say that? All decisions are wrong. And all decisions are right. So you, along the way, you are going to meet with uh, wrong things. Well, you have to make correction. 
if you are doing the right thing, go ahead. But if you, you have done something wrong, be uh, uh, well, be brave enough to say that, look, this is wrong. I must change. So you change. Uh, it's, it's not uh, something that is uh, uh, carved in stone that cannot be changed. You can change as we go along. Okay. And thank, okay, we have two minutes left, so I'm just going to end on this. But, you know, thank you so much for your time today, giving up your morning to talk to us. Um, I would say that creating a developed nation is not easy. According to the IMF, there are 152 countries still developing. So if there was a recipe book on how to develop properly, there would be no need to study economics anymore. So yeah, when we talk about your contributions and your conviction is that you came from a place of wanting nothing but the best for Malaysia and to sort of stand out globally and something that we can be proud of internationally. So terima kasih to you, Tun, and all the best with your rest of your day. Thank you. Hello and hi, I hope you've enjoyed the show thus far. So what you just saw was an edited version of the 45 minutes that we had with Tun. So we wanted to first post a more focused version covering his life and financial literacy and the youth. So what you're going to see next is, you know, when you have the opportunity to talk to Tun Mahade. It's not every day that you get to talk to Tun Mahade, so there were a few questions that we were curious about. So, I touch on that these questions are more political in nature. These questions do get a bit heavy with the topic. So, what we have here is a discussion on East Malaysia development, uh, we discuss education, we discuss money politics, we discuss amendments to the 1971 Colleges Act, and we also have a question about the current Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim. So, we thought it'd be best to just uh, release it and share it with our audience. I would also add that there is still an uncut version, and if this podcast gets 10,000 views on YouTube and Spotify, we'll release the full uncut 46 minute interview and there are some gems in there so yeah, if you enjoyed it thus far thank you, share it with friends and hope you enjoy the rest of uh, our discussion with Tun Talk a bit about redistribution so for example with the Malaysian development and us being a key global player in semiconductors and gloves. A caveat with this centralization is that a lot of states are left behind. So for example, in Malaysia, the median income is 5.8k, but only 7 out of 13 of states in Malaysia reach this median income or exceed it. And for example, Sabah, my own hometown, only has a median income of 4.2k. So, in your opinion, Dylan, how do you think we could move forward in ensuring all of Malaysia does not get left behind? So, right now I'm asking about state allocation. So, for example, when the federal government determines how much to give to Sabah and Sarawak for infrastructure, for example. Yeah, based on needs, also based on population. You see, if the population is big, naturally, you have to give more. And if the country is big and has lots to do, uh, you have to allocate more funds. But in addition to that, the federal government also must undertake certain projects in the state, and that helps the state. For example, if uh, 
Uh, for Kedah, for example, you cannot give Kedah the same amount of money as you give to Sabah because Kedah is a small state. But if you want to build an airport in Kedah, the state couldn't afford. So that is a federal uh, responsibility. So you not only do you give money to the state, but also you have to have projects in the state by the federal government. So one more question just on the same topic is, in your opinion, Tun, do you think that the budget allocation to Sabah and Sarawak are fair? Well, uh, you must remember that when Sabah Sarawak joined uh, and Malaysia, they were very poor. They were very poor, actually. And at that stage, of course, a lot of the uh, development funds came from the federal government. Uh, but now, both Sabah and Sarawak are very rich. For example, Sarawak's uh, budget is 11 billion ringgit. Whereas uh, budget for Kedah is 700 million ringgit. Uh, so obviously, Sarawak has got more money, Kedah has got less money. You have to balance that. You have to give more to, to Kedah than you give to, to Sarawak. But even then, uh, because of Sarawak's contribution and also ability to earn money by themselves, uh, the amount should be, we should study the amount that should be given to each state. But there is already an allowance based on population. So I think uh, now shifting gears, another issue that's close to your heart is education. And Jasin has a few questions on education for you. Survey from the Department of Statistics has shown that uh, around 70% of uh, SPM viewers they do not wish to further their studies. So, as a former education minister, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, the education ministry is uh, perhaps the biggest ministry because there are hundreds of thousands of teachers and uh, you have schools all over the country. You have to provide for the schools. So education ministry is a very big ministry and any amount that you give would not be enough because uh, already it is getting more than what other ministries get. So invariably, there will be some, some unfortunate uh, schools which may not get the money that they are entitled to. But the, the thing about the uh, government is that we spend more money on education than we spend on the armed forces. Most countries, they spend more money on uh, arms, on the military, than on education. But in Malaysia, we spend more money on education than on other ministries. So that's how important education is to us. But whatever we spend, the demand would exceed the capacity of the government to finance. Uh, our only way is, of course, to enrich the country, make the country well off, and the government can collect more taxes and have more money to spend. And a lot of that money will go to the Ministry of Education. Okay, uh, so, Atun, uh, looking forward, is there anything with regards to education 
that you think the new government uh, should prioritize for the betterment of our students? Well, you see, the way you teach people uh, changes with the times. You see, initially, teaching is uh, verbal. You, the teacher talks to the student and tells the student whatever knowledge that he wants to pass on to the student. But after that, they came books. Books were printed. That helps education. But today, we have modern technology. The most important thing about the modern technology is the ability to record things and play back many times. You can record the lesson. For example, the, we have a lot of teachers, but some are good, some are bad. If you get a good teacher, the school does, does well. But if you get a bad teacher, the school does not do well. So what you can do is, if you select the best teacher and he gives a, he or she gives a, a lesson in a class which is recorded, then that record can be played throughout the whole country. So the whole country will be taught by the best teacher. But we are not using modern technology in teaching. We are still uh, concentrating on the teacher in the class. But the teacher in the class, some teachers are good, some teachers are bad, and the student will suffer. Do you think there are, do you agree with this statement? There are no bad students, only bad teachers. Would you agree with that or disagree? Almost true, almost true. But sometimes, of course, the students are bad. <laughs> okay, and the next thing I want to touch on is... But, okay, I am going to grill you a bit on one aspect. I want to catch out you sikit on this. I know that you have no regrets about implementing and amending the University Colleges Act in 1975. You've talked about it in your book that you had to restore order and stability to education. But just on a personal level, do you think Youth Mahadre would have appreciated that amendment, if that question makes sense? Well, I was involved in politics and subsequently I was given a scholarship to study medicine in Singapore. And during the time when I was studying medicine, I uh, did not uh, get involved in politics at all. I left it to the other people. They were involved in setting up UMNO and the like. Uh, I thought that my first duty was to make use of the scholarship to qualify as a doctor. I cannot be distracted with any other thing. But once you, are, you have qualified, then you are in a position to get involved in politics at your own expense. Not uh, because when you are given a scholarship to study, you cannot use that time, uh, which costs money to other people, to go, go get involved in something that is not uh, what the money was given to you for. The scholarship was for me to study medicine, and I studied medicine. And you graduated and opened a clinic, so okay, on that front, it was a success. So 
the next, you know, we just we touched on your old party just now, Basatu, and right now they're being investigated for having a lot of money in their bank accounts. Uh, I think it's best to let MACC investigate. And, you know, money politics is something that happened during your time, but also after. So moving forward, I am curious, would you support political parties having less assets and having to rely more on donations from individual members and not having large sums of money from corporations? Well, currently, and for a long time, since uh, even my time, a candidate can spend not more than 200,000 ringgit. Uh, and he has to submit, at the end of the election, he has to submit uh, his uh, account to the, uh, uh, the, the Suruhanjaya Pilihan Raya to show that he did not exceed the limit of money. But there is nothing said about the party. How much money can the party spend? There is no limit. So a party can spend a billion dollars or a party which has no money cannot, cannot ever win. Uh, that is something that needs to be corrected. I believe that even political parties must have a limit to the amount they can spend and there must be a limit to the things they can do. For example, they put in millions of flags all over the country. It's not necessary. And they put on uh, uh, placards and pictures and all that. A lot of money was spent during election. Now it has come to a stage where if you don't have money, you lose the election. No matter how good you are, if you don't have money, you lose the election. So we need to limit the number of flags you use, the number of signboards, the number of... Uh, uh, meetings that you can have, public meetings and all that, so that everybody would be able to have sufficient ability or funds in order to carry out their campaign. At this moment, uh, during the 15th election, I noticed that the, the amount of money spent by some parties was so big that uh, you wonder, where do they get the money? And of course, that is the question that is being asked now. So do you know where, do you have any hypothesis on where they might have gotten the money? Well, with regard to uh, BN, Pakistan National, the money came from Najib because he stole a lot of money. It's been proven in the court of law that he was stealing money, billions of dollars. So he can use the money to finance uh, the party to finance the election. Uh, the others, uh, I know, for example, that uh, there was uh, uh, terrible corruption on the part of ministers. What they did it was that um, if there is a contract given out, uh, they, the contractor must give them some money for the contract to be approved. So they make a lot of money that way. Uh, there are other ways they can raise money, not for correctly, um, and mainly through uh, abusing their position as ministers. So these are the sources of funds which are illegal. So if you have to limit 
the amount of money that you are allowed to spend uh, by the party during election. Well, we, when people contribute money to political parties, they may, must do that openly. If they are able to hide, then some of the money may be stolen money. But if they, you have to declare the amount that you give, then of course, uh, uh, you will, people will know where the money comes from and you may be investigated. But the most important thing is to limit the amount of money that each party can have. You cannot allow parties to have a billion dollars. You know, I was shocked when I found one minister had $2 billion when he died. How, how did a minister gain $2 billion when business people also find it difficult to raise a few hundred million? But this minister had $2 billion. And another minister who lost $2 million uh, said, oh, that's peanuts. Uh, so ministers should not have so much money. The money they, they have should come actually only from the salary. If there is any donation to the party, it must be received by the party and a receipt must be issued. Um, also, a lot of times when you go to the media, especially in 2018 and 2020, is people are sort of trying to pit you against the, what is it? Uh, the, or was it Anwar Ibrahim, the current prime minister? So sort of shifting gears, do you have one nice memory that you have with Anwar Ibrahim? Or can you share something nice about the current prime minister? Well, uh, I was the one who actually brought him up. He was uh, a youth leader outside uh, any uh, political system. So I he applied to join Amno. Uh, at that time, I was president of Amno. Uh, most people did not want him uh, because they think that when he joins, he's going to go for the for the um, big big post in the party. But I felt that uh, he would be uh, influential in giving. Uh, at that time, he looked like a very religious religious person that uh, he would introduce some good religious values to the party and to the government. So I admitted him into the party, subsequently appointed him as deputy minister, but of course he was very unhappy about that. He said he should be minister. I had to point out to him that he's a newcomer to the party. There are lots of senior people who were not chosen as minister. But eventually, of course, he ended up as deputy prime minister. The moment I stepped down, he would be the prime minister. Unfortunately, he felt that I was overstaying my welcome as far as he is concerned. After 10 years, he didn't see me resigning. So he started a campaign against me, using other people to condemn me for being a dictator, corruption, cronyism, and all that. None of which was proven, but he went against me. But even then I was quite prepared. 
if he were to contest with me. But unfortunately, the, the police came up with some case, uh, which I cannot brush aside. Uh, I had to go according to the, the proper procedure as required by the law.